This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI senior writer Al Castle. Going to be joined in a moment by my co-host, Dan Murphy, and we are going to be talking about the female 50 uh, that just dropped in the February issue of uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. February 2018, um, I believe the digital edition is out uh, this week. Uh, By the time you're hearing it, it should be out. Uh, and we're going to be going over to the top 10 and also talking about uh, some more highlights. And then later in the show, I uh, got a very special guest um, uh, earlier this week. I sat down and talked to uh, Rory Karp, the director of the brand new Ric Flair 30 for 30 uh, documentary on ESPN that premieres on November 7th. And we had a, a pretty long chat about the film uh, really kind of looking deeper into the film and looking into uh, looking deeper into a uh, Ric Flair and uh, a fun conversation. Uh, I got to uh, get an advanced look at the documentary and uh, it it really um, I thought was terrific and it's the kind of thing uh, as I talk with worry about sort of unfolds uh, even after you watch it for for hours and days later you kind of start to uh, appreciate some of the nuance of the story that was told and the complexity. Uh, of Ric Flair, uh, you know, widely considered the the greatest wrestler in history, and also one of the more uh, interesting, complex uh, personalities. And I think Rory's documentary uh, does a a fantastic job of uh, digging into that and uncovering it. So a fun talk uh, that'll be up here in just a moment. Uh, Right now, I want to tell you about the February 2018 issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. As I uh, mentioned, uh, just arrived uh, the digital edition online. You can get it at pwi-online.com. The print edition will be on newsstands uh, in the coming weeks. And uh, lots to uh, uh, enjoy in this issue, not the least of which is the annual Female 50, uh, largely put together by our own Dan Murphy, who's going to join me here in a moment to talk about the list. And it is basically the women's... Uh, equivalent of the PWI 500, uh, although as uh, I'm sure Dan will talk about, uh, he he sure wouldn't mind having more than 50. I'm not sure he'd quite want 500, uh, but with the wealth of female talent in wrestling and in in this list for the first time, really expanded it internationally. So I think um, tougher than ever to narrow it down to just 50, and Dan will talk about that uh, in just a moment. Uh, but a really fantastic list. Uh, Dan is one of the uh, most informed minds when it comes to women's wrestling. You know, as, as you could tell by the success of his recent book, um, "The Sisterhood of the Squared Circle." Uh, so, if just for the female fifty, it's most certainly worth checking out. But there is a lot more uh, in the issue. Uh, on the cover is Braun Strowman, and inside is my hot seat interview uh, with Braun. Uh, Conducted the day after his Great Balls of Fire title shot. Was that the uh, where he was in No Mercy? I forget what the pay-per-view was, but uh, his recent pay-per-view title shot against Brock Lesnar. We talked the very next day and uh, a real in-depth interview with uh, a guy who uh, I think typically doesn't open up the way he did. You know, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find 
the the depth of of um, interview that I had with him, a lot of fun, um, really, I think, revealed uh, another side to him and a side that I think fans who uh, read the interview will really appreciate and make you feel good about his future and the future of WWE with guys like him uh, at the helm. Uh, so you definitely want to check out that. And lots more. I've got another feature on Ring of Honor star Dalton Castle. Um, other features inside. Uh, just a fantastic issue. Uh, we've got a string of them here between the 500 uh, in the last issue, now the female 50. And before you know it, we'll be doing the year and achievement awards. So this is kind of our busy time. And it's the right time to go ahead and subscribe to Pro Wrestling Illustrated. The longer you subscribe, the deeper the discount, you can get more than half off of the cover price. And uh, the place to do that, again, is pwi-online.com for the print or digital. Digital is formatted, customized for your uh, device, your phone, your laptop, whatever it is, uh, looks great. So you definitely want to consider that option. And as I mentioned, uh, you get a lot sooner than the print edition. Uh, While you've got the phone open or the computer open, Please uh, follow us on Twitter at Official PWI. Subscribe to the podcast uh, on iTunes. Find us on Facebook. Uh, and uh, please send us an email here at PWIPodcast at Outlook.com. All right. Joining me now, Dan Murphy, my co-host and senior writer and uh, the man who is largely responsible for the Female 50, uh, which, as I mentioned, uh, just dropped uh, digitally uh, this week. And uh, we're here to talk about the top 10 and maybe uh, beyond. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining me. Hey, you know, they, some say that Dan Murphy started the Divas Revolution. Did you know that? <laughs> some say it, that. Yes. I don't or know. Emolution or the evolution, think... whatever they call it. Right, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bad news about Emma, by the way. I don't know if we should start with that. Uh, any thoughts on, on her release? Very surprising, obviously, you know, given the match against Asuka, you know, just uh, last week at at the pay-per-view, where she really dominated most of the match, uh, you know, which was kind of surprising. You know, Emma never really had that opportunity to shine, and as it turned out, it was kind of her swan song with WWE. So hopefully there's bigger and better things for her. WWE never really seemed to know what to do with her. Uh, She was on the roster for, what, four years, maybe, between the whole dancing character, maybe even longer when you count NXT. Right. So uh, she was there for a long period of time, and and creative really had nothing for her. So uh, hopefully the indies and elsewhere will be better. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm surprised because uh, it's not like, especially with the brand split, it's not like either brand has, like, this super depth or wealth of talent that you can afford to let someone like Emma, who wasn't at the very top uh, of the heap, but wasn't at the bottom either. Um, and I think had could have been. Yeah. I remember interviewing uh, Paige a couple of years back and I asked her who her dream WrestleMania match would be against. And without hesitating, she said, Emma. Really? Yeah. I think kinda, she was you know, fine. I... Yeah. I mean, when you think about yeah. uh, the range of talent, I, I, I don't think she, again, I don't think she's at the bottom of it. Um, and she's, very attractive, and I know that doesn't mean as much as it did in kind of the old Divas days, but it still obviously means something. It's why they chose her for the Emmeline character that never took off, uh, but the point is that she's a really good-looking girl um, and very talented, and, you know, uh, and maybe we'll talk about this more in, in the course of talking about the female 50, but you talk about uh, opportunities on the independence, and that's more than ever, and uh, certainly a a course or a path 
for men who get released from WWE. I don't know if it really is for, for women still. I mean, there are some opportunities out there, but not the opportunity to make WWE-like money. And there really isn't... Um, uh, I mean, I know Japan is an option, but it's not the option that is for men, certainly not New Japan, where a, a top talent in, in WWE can go to uh, New Japan. You know, there's all kinds of rumors about Daniel Bryan doing it and not only do okay, but do really well. And, um, you know, we've seen with Cody Rhodes and some others. I don't know that those opportunities exist for women. So if you're in WWE and you find yourself out of WWE, that is a huge, huge blow. Yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly there's enough interest over, and again, I don't know what the, uh, with Emma's uh, condition, what the non-compete uh, situation is, but I know, you know, Shimmer is running in two weeks. You know, wouldn't it be something to see, you know, Tennille show back up Shimmer and, and kind of surprise the fans there? Again, much smaller than being able to go to New Japan or, or whatever. But I think after anyone is released from WWE, there's maybe that four to six month span where, uh, indie promoters are clamoring to get that person right away. Uh, and then for women especially, it, it kind of dramatically drops off the interest after that point. Yeah, and, and whatever interest there is, I mean, every indie promoter in the country could be interested. The point is, is it uh, uh, economically feasible for her, right? I mean, it's right. a payday, but I can't imagine she can match what WWE uh, was paying her stringing together uh, indie dates. Maybe for a little while she could. Uh, but in the long term, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully or maybe the goal is uh, sort of what what Drew McIntyre did, uh, which is to use the time to rebuild your reputation and make yourself more valuable to WWE. Uh, so they bring you back. So who knows? I mean, certainly best. I, th I think a different story with Summer Rae. Would you agree who, um, you know, you talk about the top of, of the heap and the bottom of the heap. I think she was closer to the bottom of the heap. I don't think, um, you know, she came along some and improved, but I don't think it's a name that fans were clamoring to see back in the ring. Uh, so, you no, know, certainly yeah, unfortunate for her this, as well. Right. Had this been the Divas division, then, then maybe she'd have a, you know, a, a more lasting run in WWE. And even again, she had, she'd been around for several years um, but never really got many opportunities, and, and her work rate wasn't, you know, it, the, the time passed her by, basically, and yeah. I don't think she could keep up with it. And that's not a, a, a discredit to her. It's just that WWE went in a very different direction a few years ago and, and really started getting girls from the independents and bringing in girls who could really, really work. And uh, somebody who didn't have that background was uh, at a distinct disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. And I guess while we're on the topic, we should bring up uh, Darren Young, who was the third release um, some people were surprised just because, and I don't know if this was, you know, for better or for worse, there was a thought that he was sort of Teflon because of uh, how much they made of him being the first openly gay wrestler and sort of the PR benefits uh, that come with that and how it looks PR-wise to release your, your one openly gay wrestler. Uh, but, you know, not, not a guy who was on a huge trajectory, was was out for a while, certainly some talent there. Um, but you know, it, it's sort of funny, the whole kind of, um, uh, tolerance and acceptance and sort of equal opportunity, uh, cuts both ways. Right. So it, in one way you could look at the fact that they released him as WWE, you know, not giving him any special treatment because, uh, of his sexuality, you know, they saw him, you, you put that aside and he's just a guy who, 
you know, kind of underperforming um, and was released. But you you got to think that they're mindful of potential repercussions. And, and maybe there's not. Maybe it was on good terms and, you know, they go their separate ways and that's it. But, uh, you know, I'd say this with, with with the wrong person, not the wrong person, but in certain circumstances, you sh- you'd think they'd be concerned about um, uh, what do they call it? Sort of uh, unlawful termination, uh, discrimination suits, that kind of thing. And uh, again, there's no reason to think that 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 has anything to do with it. Uh, but you know, and, and you and the idea at least comes up. Yeah, and Darren Young always has struck me as as being a definite company guy, and you know. He, he's been around the wrestling business a long time. He used to be back in the ECWA when he was, uh, what was he, Bone Crusher Samson, and then he did a gimmick as Frederick of Hollywood. And uh, The guy's been around for a long time. He knows the business, and he knows that he was uh, not in a featured role for a long period of time. And, you know, if you're not in a featured role for a long period of time in WWE, there's always other guys knocking at the door, yeah. especially when you've got a hot developmental like NXT. He had to know that, you know, the, the writing was on the wall. And, uh, you know, he, he had a good run there, uh, one or two tag team title runs, I yeah. think. Um, you know, so it's, I mean, I, I'm sure he has no complaints. But you're right. Under different circumstances, this could have been a, a real firestorm. Uh, with Darren, I don't think that's uh, the kind of situation at all. Yeah, yeah. And re- it is hard to look at how he was handled and say that, uh, you know, they really botched anything. He He did get a lot of opportunities. He got... As you mentioned, tag title reign. He got he, Bob Backlund. He got Bob Backlund. He, he got Backlund. a yeah. He got a featured match for the the IC belt, I think, at a pay per view. So he was given some opportunities, and it's not that he floundered in any of those opportunities. He just also didn't set the world on fire, you know. Um, and right. that happens. Right. So yeah. Anyhow, uh, what we we meant to talk uh, to uh, talk about here. Let's get back uh, on topic. The PW, PWI female fifty uh, dropping this week. If both of us sound a little out of it, it's because we're doing this a lot earlier than than usual so um uh it's very early as as we're recording this and um the sun yeah. hasn't come up yet it's yes. halloween it's creepy <laughs> out it's uh yeah it's still you woke me up too early for this hell. yes indeed um but why don't we go ahead and reveal and this is news to me by the way uh who is this year's number one pwi female 50 wrestler okay let's do it uh number one uh, again what we looked at this year pretty much the same criteria as the men. It's not just who has the best work rate, but it's who's had the most sustained success over the course of the previous 12 months during the evaluation period. Now, sometimes you find a worker who is uh, number one, either in the female 50 or in the 500, where you can say, yes, that person had the best year. And sometimes you can say, wow, yeah, I could see that him or her being the best worker. Yeah, I could see that. And and we saw that with Okada uh, this year with the 500. And I think it's the same with the female 50. Uh, the number one is Asuka. Interesting. Yeah, uh, and, Asuka, and uh, yeah. I think a pretty clear number one. Fascinating that uh, we have a number one uh, in both our male and female lists, the 550, from Japan. Uh, is she the yes. first Japanese number one in the female 50? She is. Yeah, wow, fascinating. Is. Yeah. You'd almost think that this was like sort of intended and gimmickry, but it really isn't. I mean, they were both the right choice this year. Yeah. Does it say something about the the quality of wrestler coming out of Japan? It it can. I mean, 
more so the quality of wrestler who comes out of Japan but can also really establish their name in the U.S. Uh, Asuka more than Okada. Okada had a handful of dates in the U.S., in California, and so on. Uh, and I think he's just doing one in uh, Australia. I think he's doing Melbourne uh, pretty soon. Uh, but most of his success is all within New Japan and, and in-country. Asuka came in, and I had seen her for years in Shimmer when she wrestled as Kana. And Kana spoke very little English, kind of kept to herself, and was intimidating as hell. And I mean, legitimately, backstage, when girls would show up and find out that they had to work Kana, like, they would get nervous. I, I had to talk a few girls through it, you know, like, hey, settle down, it's just a match, you know. Because she was such a vicious striker and, and had this, this reputation. But the thing is, it, it was, um, you know, to use a, a phrase that people use now, that they, they worked themselves into a shoot, where they, they bought the character so much that they thought that they were just going to get murdered in the ring, and then realized, no, she's a total pro. Everything looks vicious and, and brutal, but, you know, she'll protect, and, and, you know, she's a good, pure wrestler. Um it's very rare that you see that in the women's ranks. You see somebody who has that reputation making it to WWE and then succeeding in WWE. Um, Kana at the time, I, I was a huge fan of, but I never thought that she had the, the statuesque look that WWE required at the, the time. I never thought somebody with her striking style or inability to really cut promos in English would get over in WWE, and she did. And uh, maybe that's the Japanese work ethic. Maybe it's, it's a variety of factors. Uh, but she came in with a lot of things uh, as potential obstacles, and one very big plus being the fact that she's just an incredible pro wrestler. And in this case, that one plus overcame all of the, uh, the obstacles. Yeah, yeah. Did it? Uh, it obviously didn't hurt her, uh, but some might think that it should have. The quality of competition argument. Now I know she went undefeated in NXT, uh, but you could argue that she wasn't fighting the top women either. Is that something that you considered, especially sort of NXT over the last year, having lost some of the real elite talent? There was a big drop off from. Uh, the the uh, uh, Bailey's and Sasha Banks's and uh, uh, those types to like a Peyton Royce and and the the level of competition then that is in uh, NXT right now uh, aside I guess absolutely. from Ember Moon yeah absolutely and uh, the thing is though um, and to show that point and this is again probably going to be controversial and this jumps ahead a little bit but um, uh, Peyton Royce and and Billy Kay they didn't make the, the female 50 this year. Wow. Um, I guess that's the depth so of many, talent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because then what we did this year with the female 50 is we decided to include, uh, in, in previous years, we have looked at uh, women primarily based in North America, uh, U.S. and Canada. Mexico qualifies, but we haven't had a lot other than, say, Sexy Star, who's made the list from Mexico. With the exception of wrestlers like Madison Eagles, who was number one several years back, Kelly Skater and a couple others who were from Australia or Soraya from the UK, but they were either top contenders or champions in Shimmer, being the largest indie promotion. It just kind of made sense to include them. Uh, but when we started the female 50, you had the Joshi scene in Japan was so different from what we had. You know, you had Kelly Kelly in WWE and you had Joshi wrestling in Japan. It, it, it just seemed ridiculous to kind of combine those two. And over the course of the last decade, as we've been doing the female 50, um, the style has changed so much where you can have these same women competing 
with each other. So it only made sense to open this up to international talent. So what happened is we brought in some of the best from Japan, some of the best from the UK and elsewhere, and some of the people who have been kind of just uh, roster spots in NXT and Impact and uh, on the Indies, you know, somebody had to, to take the cut. Yeah, yeah. The concerns about how um, she's been handled so far. I mean, some people are already saying, oh, it's been botched and she's going to flounder. And we're just over a week, less than two weeks since her uh, debut. Uh, but, you know, Monday Night Raw this past week, the, the reaction was considerably less than it was just a week ago. Uh, but in some ways she was handled better because she was put in more of a kind of a dominating position. So what do you think about her going forward, how she'll do on the main roster? I think she'll do very well. Yeah, I I think she'll do very well. I think she'll have a a championship run. Uh, She's a little bit older than a lot of the girls are. Um, You know, I don't know if she'll be a champion for, you know, three, four years, have a, a big long run. But I think that 2018 will be her year. And, and kind of we'll see how things go from there. Uh, right now, she's kind of new. She's got the mystique. Whether she'll have staying power, I don't know. And I would have booked her a little bit differently against Emma. I get maybe they were trying to do Emma some favors as they, you know, maybe they knew she was on her way out and thought, hey, we'll give you one WWE highlight real match where you really kind of mm. took it to Asuka and, and make that a uh, opportunity to, you know, kind of shop yourself uh, on the Indies and elsewhere. Um, but in retrospect, I would have handled the debut as being what she's been in NXT, and that's just an utterly dominant um, competitor. Yeah. And not gone like a, what, 14 or 15 minute match against Emma, who was pretty much unheralded. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's uh, uh, move on. Who is number two on the list? All right, this went back and forth a couple times, but in the end, um, we ended up going with uh, Charlotte as mm-hmm. number two. Yeah, I think that, uh, that makes sense. Again, yeah, and you have to look at where we were at, at this time last year, uh, where she was in the middle of that feud with uh, Sasha Banks. They're trading the title back and forth. They're main eventing Raw. They're main eventing pay-per-views. And Charlotte, for the longest time, having that undefeated run going on at, uh, at pay-per-views. Um, so we ended up giving her the nod over the number three, who was really pushing for it, uh, which was Alexa Bliss. Uh, wow. With everything Alexa Bliss has done in the past six months, uh, winning the championship in SmackDown and going to Raw, winning the championship on Raw, uh, we, we gave Charlotte the nod over Alexa Bliss. Yeah, so let's talk about both of those. With Alexa Bliss, it's interesting because I think that gets, it's almost the opposite of the Asuka situation where uh, she's really uh, benefited, I imagine, from quality of competition because she's clearly a, a notch below um, Charlotte and Asuka in terms of what she brings in the ring, but she's pulled off these victories against that notch above her, right? So she she's sort of fought up uh, 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 above her ability, right? So I, I think that's helped her uh, gain credibility. And yeah, I mean, obviously she's, she's been a champion of both brands now and had the title on Raw for uh, a while now. And as for Charlotte, you know, uh, we got this interview uh, we're going to listen to in a bit with Rory Karp from the, uh, the 30 for 30, the, the Flair 30 for 30. And we talked some about Charlotte. And she's just incredible. I mean, he, he talks about her maybe being the best athlete in uh, on the entire roster, male or female, and she absolutely is that, and uh, I imagine can top this list many more times over her career uh, as long as she, she decides to keep doing this. Yes. Yeah, it, I think that's a credible point. I think, I mean, she obviously is an incredible athlete, and she's underrated um, because 
you know, her last name. People say, okay, Charlotte Flair, but then when she does the moonsaults and the, the suicide dives and the moonsaults from, you know, the top rope to the floor and some other things. I mean, that's, you don't see a lot of women doing that, you know, regardless of last name. And uh, people kind of, uh, you know, she's so good that you begin to take a lot of little things that she does for granted. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible. Uh, okay, number four. All right, well, I'll, I'll throw this at you, Al. Who would you go with with number four, uh, given who we've already gone with with the top three? Thinking about the evaluation period, I, I guess the next name in my mind would be a Sasha Banks in as much as that title was traded back and forth between Charlotte and Sasha. I still see the, the Raw title as being more meaningful than the SmackDown title, and uh, I, I think it was Sasha kind of nipping at Charlotte's heels for much of, of the period. A drop-off in the last few months, but I think it would be carried by her work earlier in, in the evaluation period. We're, we're on the same page, man. That's exactly it. Sasha Banks at number four, for the reasons that you just mentioned. Again, she was so even with Charlotte and going back and forth with that rivalry. A little bit of a drop-off over the closing months of the evaluation period, uh, not because of athletic ability or, or in-ring prowess or anything like that, but just simply not, you know, not having the high-profile wins and the, the title reigns that, that she had in the earlier part of the evaluation period. Yeah, and it's interesting to see, and you know, I guess, like, the men's roster or any roster, you got to kind of uh, uh, cycle people in and out of the top. So even a, a, a top talent like Sasha Banks can't just constantly be in the main event. Uh, so for some people, it, I think it's been a little sort of surprising to see, you know, her working uh, the kickoff show matches against Alicia Fox and and, and that kind of uh, a level of, of match. Uh, but I don't worry too much about her. I mean, I think it's just about sort of clearing some space at the top and ro rotating her back in, um, you know, she, there was a time there when she was in NXT where I thought as far as a, a, a full package of work in the ring and the showmanship and the character and all of it, she was as good as anybody in the business, uh, male or female. Uh, and, you know, that's dropped somewhat, um, but, but I still think there's, you know, all the tools are there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, again, I mean, Sasha has her, her very passionate fans, and I know we're probably going to take a beating because we do every year that Sasha's not number one in the female 50. Um, you know, but again, um, had the evaluation period ended eight months or so, maybe, you know, but again, uh, she had that great run with Charlotte that Charlotte really came out on top of. So it, it's even yeah. tough giving her the, the edge on that. But then kind of having cooled off as much as she did towards the tail end of the evaluation period. Uh, I, I think number four is really the, the right spot for her. Yeah, everything makes sense to me so far. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, and who's number five? Okay, number five. It is the hugger herself. It's Bailey. You know, that one might feel... Does it feel too high? Again, some, some of it is just looking at who else there is. Um, but... She's taken a real drop. I mean, I think more than, than Sasha. And I think the difference is that I think there is still the the perception uh, by fans, and rightfully so, that Sasha is a top act. She belongs in the top. Um, they want to see her in the top, and it's a matter of, of time before she moves back into that. With Bailey, I feel like that perception has really dropped from her being one of the best uh, in the world, um, and, and certainly in WWE, to, uh, you know, we talked about 
whether WWE is botching it for for Asuka, and it really feels like they have botched it for Bailey. It's it's definitely very tough for anyone to come from NXT to to the main roster, and particularly the women, because the women who get over on NXT in NXT, there's something very special about them that the fans at Full Sail and and the other NXT outlets when they tour, uh, they they really get behind. And for whatever reason, WWE's creative team has been very unable to, to bring those little nuances to the main roster. You know, when it gets to be time for TV and you have to kind of reintroduce these characters, uh, your hardcore fans, your NXT fans may know them, but your casual viewers and the, you know, the little kids filling the 18,000 seat or 12,000 seat stadiums, whatever, um, they don't. So WWE has kind of really not done a great job of bringing a lot of these people up. It's not the performer's fault per se. It's just that what they've been doing that's been working isn't necessarily translating on the bigger stage. Yeah. Now, with Bailey, um, at the tail end of last year, well, at the beginning of the evaluation period or so, uh, having lost the title to Asuka, um, still having some matches there in NXT, really giving Asuka some great challenges and showing the, the toughness, because at that time, it just seemed like, you know, Bailey just didn't have the, the killer instinct to, to compete with somebody like Asuka. Uh, but they really had a, a great series of bouts. Uh, you know, Asuka won the feud, um, but Bailey still uh, continued being a, a top contender in NXT until she got the call up. Uh, got a title ran, a run pretty early on. Had some injuries, had to pull out of SummerSlam, I believe, with the shoulder injury. Um, so it was kind of a mixed bag, but when you look at the success that she'd had in NXT, even though it was at the tail end of it, and then transitioning and having that success in WWE, that's uh, why we decided to give her that spot. Yeah. Uh, in in WWE's uh, defense, I think the character uh, is a tough one to, to get over with such a large audience. It's one thing in kind of the small setting of, of the NXT arena in Orlando, uh, where she can be more intimate with fans and, and that kind of thing. But doing the whole very nice girl hugging gimmick uh, in front of 15,000 fans, it, it's tougher. Fans are older. They're a little more jaded. Um, all that said, there have been opportunities along the way for, for WWE. I mean, they're almost gimmies in terms of, uh, was there a pay-per-view where she was fighting for the title in uh her hometown, San Jose, right? And uh, I think they had her win the title, like, before that. So she went in there yeah. as the defending champion. And it's like, do you need to be told that it would be a real big deal for her to win the world title, uh, win the title in her hometown on pay-per-view? Uh, and, and there were a lot of opportunities like that where uh, it just was kind of an inefficient use of of her character. And, and you know, they it's not a surprise that they do that with, with everyone. Uh, but... Yeah, like, you know, now there's talk of turning her heel, and, and I guess she was even talking about that uh, on the Steve Austin podcast, maybe, and I just don't know how I feel about that. I mean, maybe, you know, just the change will freshen up her, her act, uh, but God, she was such an effective babyface in NXT, it, it's hard to think that this soon into her run on the main roster, they'd even be considering something like a heel turn. Uh, but it's even harder to believe that maybe it's the right choice. I mean, given um, what a time, uh, what a hard time she's having as a, a baby. Well, face. it might even be the even worse thing is it might be overdue. I yeah. mean, because now she's a bit slumping. If she had done this, you know, six months or so ago, well, maybe four or five months or so ago, 
uh, when she was still kind of brand new and people were just kind of getting behind the, wow, this is a good girl with, you know, the hugging and the wacky waving inflatable arm two men and whatever. Uh, and then all of a sudden she just brutally, you know, stomps the, the, the daylights out of somebody. And then you cut to the fans, the little girls crying in the front row, the whole thing. You know, I mean, that, that could have been really effective. Uh, right now, I think it would just be, you know, another heel turn. So they, they might have even missed the window on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and who is number six on the female 50? Okay, this is where things begin to kind of, uh, up to now, we've just been looking WWE for the most part and, you know, NXT, WWE main roster. Uh, number six from Stardom, from Stardom it's Io Shari. And um, she is probably pound for pound, maybe not even with the pound for pound moniker, the best pure worker in, in the world right now. Definitely the best female worker. I don't know about female and male, but she'd have to be in the conversation. Uh, just an incredible talent. Uh, she had been rumored to be headed to WWE. It ended up not happening. Um, and it would have been a, I don't know if death knell is too strong of a word, <laughs> but if EO had left stardom, uh, it would have left that company in some dire, dire straits. Um, but as it is, she's going to be sticking around in Japan. Uh, one of the, the all time greats. And again, this is opening up the, the ratings to, um, Japanese and Joshi competitors, uh, and here, you know, making her debut on the female 50, she comes in at number six this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I was that familiar with her. I, I, I know the name. I know she was rumored for the, I guess, the May Young tournament, um, and uh, that did not materialize. Um, can, what can you tell me about stardom for, for people uh, who don't know? I mean, we're talking about uh, opportunities outside WWE for female competitors. Is, is this something is is this a a real opportunity for for some of the women who maybe find themselves on the outs stardom yeah it, it is yeah it, it definitely is uh now the thing is stardom is is this kind of promotion where uh historically and it's built with in a way the the all japan women model where you either have the cute baby faces or the monster heels and if you don't fall in one of those two categories then you know you may not really have a, a real spot uh, but that being said, it's a promotion that favors uh, incredible work rate, a lot of high speed, um, a lot of innovation, uh, some really dangerous spots. I mean, you, you, well, they look dangerous. They're, they're executed very well. You, you get a lot of Canadian destroyers, Canadian destroyers on the ring apron, suicide dives. I mean, and, and these are, you know, for example, EO is 5-1. And, you know, 5-1 women who are just, beating the living tar out of each other. Um, it's it's a promotion that has a rabid following uh, both in Japan and in the U.S. through tape trading and things like that. And I think that a woman like an Emma um, could have a, a viable, say, three-month shelf life with stardom. Um, but again, they also like to rotate people in and out other than their kind of core girls. So it's not somewhere that you would go to like, you know, uh, like Kenny Omega and, and restart your career with new Japan or anything like that. But it's definitely a place to go and, and kind of refresh the batteries and, and build a buzz around you again Yeah. for an American. Yeah. And do you see her eventually working her way to WWE? Do you think it's a matter of time? It, it, she's obviously on the radar, right? Oh, absolutely on the radar. I, I don't know exactly what I heard rumors. I don't know if it was, a medical, uh, I think there might have been a medical that she didn't pass. I, I don't know what her concussion uh, um, 
background might be. It's a very physical style over there, so I don't know. Um, I know that she's definitely willing. She can definitely work, and she's a very, very attractive woman that would be incredibly marketable for WWE. So as long as she can kind of pass the physical and, and make things work out financially, um, you know, she's a no-brainer to come over. Yeah, yeah. And uh, who is number seven? Number seven, and this is, again, because of a lot of the success in the latter half of the grading period, but it is Natalia. Mm -hmm. So Natalia, now, what I, I noticed as I was putting this together, and this is from her write-up, it took a long time, 2,758 days if you're counting, uh, since uh, Natalia's last run as Divas champion, ending in January 2011, and her wow. SummerSlam win over Naomi. So she went almost 2,800 days between uh, championship runs in, in WWE. Yeah, it's interesting because really, I mean, you talk about the pioneers of the women's revolution. Uh, it's funny because her run in WWE predates all of this. I mean, she was very much there, or she was there when they were very much still doing the the divas um brawn panties kind of uh error and, and she didn't fit in then at all i mean she was uh really kind of stuck out as a sore thumb uh because i mean she's a cute girl but that's not why you hire uh natalia neidhart right um it, it's right. what she brings uh, to the ring but she sort of had nobody to work with uh and when you did have the revolution in wwe because she was so much of kind of an old hand, I don't know that she was uh, immediately sort of uh, included or or accepted into that movement when, in some ways, for, for everybody kind of clamoring to see the Sasha Bankses and the Baileys and the Becky Lynches of the world, uh, Natty was better than all of them uh, uh, in the ring. Uh, but, you know, she, it, she was sort of the old guard, and it feels like only now... Is she starting to kind of integrate with what's going on, um, what's been going on over the last couple of years? And that's true, but if you look at it the other way, you know, uh, when Charlotte first got her big win in NXT, uh, she had that big win over Nettie. Yeah. You know, and that was her launching point, and that was kind of by design because if there's anyone who could, you know, Charlotte, athlete, great athlete, very green at the time, um, having Ric Flair in, in her corner and, and Brett and Natty's and everything. Um, they made a really, really great match that served to be the launching point for for uh, Charlotte. And that was typically Natalie's role was help the other girls look good. You know, you, you've got the, the, the veteran hand. You can help bring the best match out of them as possible. And she did that for the past few years. And now they're finally giving her a, a title run and an acknowledgement of uh, what she's contributed. Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, overdue. And I think she's... Uh, underrated in some ways also just as far as the character and her speaking abilities she's very comfortable she's got a kind of awkwardness a weirdness but it's sort of endearing it, it, it's not uh i think it helps the whole character right that she's just sort of a little weird a little off and uh uh yeah i, th I think it's a good thing uh and what are we up to number eight number eight yes and uh this one might be might seem a little high but given um well Number eight, it's Sienna from whether we want to call it TNA or Global Force <laughs> yeah, or Impact or whatever it is. But uh, she was just coming off her, her win at Slammiversary where she unified the Impact women's title with the Global Force title, had the, the big win in the feud with Rosemary. Um, so on the TNA or Impact side, uh, Sienna was kind of riding high. 
Uh, and that was her second run. She had another run as, as Impact Champion prior to that during the grading period. Uh, so representing Impact Wrestling at, at number eight is Sienna. Yeah, I feel like we talk about this every year. We talk about the list, and that's what's become of women's wrestling in uh, the former TNA, which used to be sort of the stronghold. I mean, really, they were ahead of the curve, ahead of WWE, certainly, in featuring uh, women's wrestling. And I remember a while for there's a few-year period there where, where TNA is where you went to see quality women's wrestling on national television. There were still the shimmers and, and leagues that were doing it on a smaller level, but, um, you know, when WWE was featuring, again, the Braun Panties, Pillow Fights, uh, TNA had the knockouts and had uh, some some quality wrestling going on there. Uh, so I feel like there's they, they've kind of um, returned to it somewhat. I mean, some of it is sort of forced on them because they've had to uh, cut their budget so much that they are relying more, and this goes for, for both the men and women, more on sort of like established indie stars to fill out their, their roster. And in in a way, it's a good thing in terms of um, showing really quality, hungry, young wrestling talents, and that goes for the knockouts as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Next up is number nine, and uh, that would be Naomi. Naomi, <laughs> I've got. Naomi. Uh, I, I think it's it's a fine choice, and and she had what two title runs, and has sort of like held down yep. the SmackDown side for the better part of the year. I got to admit, I, I've had to be won over some when when she um, first got the title. I sort of raised my eyebrows and said, "Really, you know?" Because again, thinking yeah. about the quality of of women that they had there. Uh, Becky Lynch and and some others, um, I just didn't see her on par. She's won me over somewhat. Um, I think she's gotten a, a, um, a better. And w- where she's most won me over is um, the effort, right? I mean, when you hear her talk, uh, you you see somebody who really wants it, who's really working hard. Sometimes, if, if my biggest criticism of her is sometimes it feels like uh, she's trying too hard, and that could sound counterintuitive. But but I don't mean trying too hard in putting too much effort, but maybe putting effort in the wrong places, right? So uh, she yeah. seems, you know, whether it's about the the gear or the entrance or light up shoes, and even in her offense, it feels like she's putting so much effort and thought in um, uh, creating real innovative offense that some really basic stuff is not quite there yet. And I feel like you're sort of jumping ahead. It's like, why don't you nail this down before you worry about, you know, how many flips you could do in a, a moonsault or something how like many, that. Right. And how many kicks you can manage to force in there and that dancing little kick thing. Yes. That she does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I agree completely. And uh, I mean, when it comes to, and again, this is part of the criteria with, with the female 50 and the, the PWI 500, it's not who's the best wrestler. It's who's had the most success over the grading period. Uh, who's the best wrestler is, is part of the criteria. But, I mean, here's Naomi who won a women's title at WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the pinnacle that everybody wants. I mean, in front of 78,000 people or so, she won a championship. Yeah. And there's how many women in wrestling history have been able to say that? So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of – she had some injuries. She had some downtime. Um, she spent a little bit more time with the Dayglow outfit than anything else, but she had two women's title runs, including a WrestleMania win. And 
that's that's counts for something. So yeah. uh, it, it helped make the top ten. Yeah, I mean, what I'd say about her in terms of a compliment, compliment is, <clears throat> um, uh, WWE should be so lucky to have uh, uh, people on their roster who care as deeply as she does. I mean, she really, you could tell that uh, she she lives and breathes her her career. Um, you know, again, some of it I feel like is misdirected sometimes, uh, but you know, here, here's somebody who. Uh, when she had who won the when she won the title, you could really see that it meant a whole lot to her. When she had to drop it, it hurt her deeply. And then coming back at WrestleMania and, and winning it in front of her hometown uh, meant the world to her. So uh, she's she's totally invested. And and again, that that is the attitude that you want out of any uh, a performer. So good for her. Um, and number ten, rounding it out. Okay, Round, rounding up the top ten. Now, what we had going on this year, uh, in addition to opening up the, the ratings to the international talent, we had the May Young Classic going on. So there's 32 women who are not contracted who you have to consider. Um, so there was, between the international talent, the women on the WWE, NXT roster, Impact, Women of Honor, and international, you also have these other 32 women to consider with the May Young Classic. And there was some crossover between those, but... Uh, so there's a, a big, busy field, and this finals was happening right at the very end of the, the evaluation period, to the point where I'm writing all of the other bios, just waiting for the finals of the Mae Young Classic to take place. So number 10, I had kind of, because I was familiar with both of these women, I, I, I thought it was to be determined. It was either uh, Kyrie Hojo or Kyrie Sane or Shayna Baszler. It was going to be the winner of the Mae Young Classic. So it ended up being number 10 was Kyrie Sane. Interesting. Yeah, you could have gone either way. You could. There's an argument for Shayna Baszler above uh, Kyrie Sane because she's more of a, a presence in the United States. And, uh, you know, I think there might be more momentum, more heat uh, for, for the name. And with all the talk of, of Ronda Rousey's involvement uh, going right. forward, she, she might factor big into WWE's plans uh, in the next several months. Uh, but yeah, I was super impressed with with Kyrie Sane um, in in the tournament. So yeah, you could really kind of flip a coin there, and, and they both would be worthy uh, uh, number tens. And it's a good point. Just the the, the whole tournament did did uh, what is the the May Young representation in the rest of the list? Uh, well, basically, not everybody who was in the May Young tournament made it, uh, but pretty much, if memory serves, off the top of my head, really. Anyone who advanced out of the first round, maybe, mm. I believe. Maybe there was one exception to that. But um, for the most part, everybody who kind of had a little bit of success, a couple people who didn't advance out of the first round still made it. Uh, I believe Tessa Blanchard was one that, that I'm thinking of. Santana Garrett, another one who, who did make the list. Um, but WWE also had some kind of lesser-known women that they you know, were, were bringing in um, yeah. really to kind of fill out roster spots, I think. Um, you know, basically somebody has to lose so somebody else can advance as opposed to being legitimate May Young Classic uh, contenders themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that being said, um, you know, you had to take everybody into consideration and not only what they did in the May Young Classic, but what they did to get there. You know, a lot of them went on big winning runs or they had a lot of accomplishments in the Indies or internationally that you had to kind of consider and, and you know, and, and take it with everybody else and figure out who deserved to make the – there's only 50 spots. Who do we who do we put in? Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I think it's a fantastic top 10, really. Uh, you know, I, I think you, you nailed it. Curious about the rest of the top 50 and any other uh, big newsmakers in, in the top. You know, we usually talk about who the number 500 is on the men's side. Who is the number 50 slot in, in the women's side? Oh, I'm not going to reveal that. <laughs> you got to buy the issue. Okay, fair I'm enough. Not today, I'm not I'm not giving away for free, man. Come on. <laughs> Can I ask you? Um, I don't know if, if you know, uh, have it in front of you, you know, offhand, but I'm I'm just curious because we've seen her get a renewed push, and she is probably the most tenured WWE female. Uh, Alicia Fox, does she make the list? Alicia Fox did not make the list. Really, that's really fascinating, and and I I don't have a huge problem with that because clearly there there is a drop off. <laughs> she very much represents that old guard. You know, we talked about Natty and. Natty not really fitting into that old diva stuff, the Braun Panty stuff. Alicia Fox really did. I mean, she she was right at home then. Uh, but I think she deserves some credit for having stuck around and having adapted somewhat and put in a match with one of these better uh, women. Uh, it's not like she stinks up the joint. I mean, I think she can hold her own. But uh, yeah, I think she's kind of an interesting case. I'm curious how old she is. Let me see if I can look that up real quick. Yeah, she well. Here's here's the interesting thing because of everything going on this year in women's she's wrestling again, the May Young Classic, wow. and she's been around since she was the wedding planner. You know, they brought her in for the the Vicky Guerrero Edge wedding. I think wasn't that the two thousand six? She's been around ago. for eleven years in WWE and yeah. only thirty one yeah. now. So she was a baby when she came over. Wow. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, um, but in any case, um, I'm going into the lion's den in two weeks when I go to Shimmer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, because yeah. Because there's a lot of very talented women who would have made the list or, or were on the cusp who didn't. And I know that this is like, you know, they look forward to this issue because they finally get some attention. And, and this year, you know, some of that attention is going to international competitors yeah. and things like that. So, but th that being said, there are talented women. I'll say this. One of my favorite women wrestlers in the world, cheerleader Melissa, did not make the list. Wow. Uh, sex, sexy star did not make the list. Wow. Uh, and there's a variety of reasons for all of that. But once you see the list in its entirety, um, you kind of look at it and say, okay, well, yeah, I don't know who you would cut to include those people. Yeah. So maybe next year I can convince Stu to go all the way with a, a female 100. Um, you know, because I think we could easily do it. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you've only got 50 spots, then you do what you can. Yeah, I mean, you just count up how many women wrestlers they are, there are competing um, in in just the United States, much less, you know, in, in one small independent region, uh, you could have more than, than 50 women all trying their luck. So, it really is a, a drop in the bucket in terms of what the, the larger universe is. So yeah, I don't I don't envy you for having to narrow it down to just fifty. Uh, anyway, Dan, fantastic list, uh, good work. Thank you for joining me uh, so early. And uh, again, I'm, we welcome uh, everybody's feedback and uh, happy to, to talk more about the female fifty in the coming weeks as this issue just comes out. Uh, thank you, Dan. Um, and we will be back soon for the moment. Let's hear. From the director of uh, the latest ESPN 30 for 30, uh, Nature Boy Ric Flair, it's Rory Carp. Where uh, do I begin? So, so I guess one thing I just want to ask you, I, I know that you worked in uh, filmmaking and, and with uh, subjects in sports, racing, and, and uh, football before. Uh, I believe this is your first foray in, into pro wrestling. And can I ask you what made 
Ric Flair an intriguing subject for you? Well, I, I grew up I grew up a huge wrestling fan in the 1980s outside Philadelphia, and I loved the NWA and the WWF. And I found, you know, Rick was regarded for the longest time as being one of the greatest ever. And I wanted to explore, like, what makes a wrestler great, wrestling predetermined. So, like, what metrics do you use to determine what makes for a great wrestler? Because you don't have touchdowns or points and things like that. And in this world where everything is, you're not really sure what's real, what's not, especially in the 1980s, Rick was real. And I found that really fascinating that he was a multi-layered, multi-dimensional person to explore. And he's also very relevant today, arguably more relevant today than ever um, in this culture of being the man, you know, that athletes and rappers and certain celebrities, they, they all want to tell you how great they are all the time. Rick was kind of ahead of his time, and he's getting quoted now more than ever. Yeah, for a multitude of the reasons, I thought he was a pretty interesting subject. Yeah, and you talk about his relevancy now. He's obviously been in news a lot as of late, and that also kind of dovetails right with the documentary where you talk about his um, uh, his drinking problem and the lifestyle, and even talks about how uh, you know he shouldn't be alive today with with how he lived his life. And clearly, um, it almost came to that just a few months ago. So. Uh, I imagine the, um, the the documentary was pretty much in the can by then, and then you seeing the the events unfold of a few months ago where he was hospitalized and, and near death, uh, and then coming out of that and, and talking about I think for the first time really acknowledging his, his alcoholism and wanting to put it in the past. How did uh, how did, did 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 you process all that? Was it something that you wanted to to come back to the film and revisit? Well, we addressed his current health situation in a director's statement that'll be on the broadcast. I don't think you got that. In, I didn't see that now. Film, yeah. Well, I wanted the film to be evergreen. So if Rick passed away, obviously that would have affected the film. Uh, we were in post-production when he was having his health problems. But, you know, he recovered. So it's, I know he's saying that he's not drinking right now, for sure. But the film kind of just ends. Oh, I wanted it to end on, like, you know, how he needs himself overall, his legacy, and these things can change, you know, with health. You know, he could decide to start drinking again, and I, I didn't want to make something that would be dated. So uh, the fact that he kind of pulled through and recovered and was on the mend and his situation wasn't drastically different, um, decided to kind of keep the film ending where it was, uh, you know, versus... Uh, kind of detailing his hospital stay and whatnot. Now, if he passed away, that would have been a much different story. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you thought maybe a little skeptical that, that he really has uh, had a drink for the last time? Is, is that the case? It's not that I'm skeptical. It's just I don't think he has a choice right now, you know, because of how close he was to death. And it's still to be determined. I mean, you know, alcoholism is a day-by-day thing. So I think it's a struggle that he's never endured before. In his entire life, he's never, you know, as far as I know, he's never been stone sober for any extended period of time. So this is the first. So I think I think the jury's still out. So I didn't want to say like, hey, he's got this clean and sober life, and then that could change. 
rather, you know, what's not going to change is that his daughter got into wrestling and he kind of lived vicariously through her and it helped him grieve the death of his son and then what kind of his legacy is. And that's kind of where the film ends up right now. So, um, you know, I think I think his ending is still to be determined. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you expect going into the film that he uh, would be such a tragic figure? I mean, how much did you know about his reputation? Because uh, it certainly comes off that way. I mean, a guy that for all his achievements and, and his reputation is the greatest of all time, uh, there's a sadness to to his whole story, to his whole life. Um, did did you see that coming? Well, I think, you know, a film is hopefully subjective in certain ways. So, you know, you're taking away that he's tragic, but other people might take away something different. You know, it's kind of like the eye of the beholder. I definitely mm-hmm. personally feel like there are aspects of his life that are tragic. But if you ask Rick what he thinks of his life, he would say he's led a great life, and he wouldn't change hardly anything about it. So it's just kind of how you view things. Uh, a lot of people might look at some of the decisions he made and disagree with him, and other people might say, hey, he's the greatest of all time. He had to sacrifice. He had to pay the price, is a quote mm-hmm. that he uses a lot in his promos. So hopefully when people watch the film, you know, two people can watch the same thing and take away something very different. Yeah. The, the, the one thing that I think is, is clear, and I think he said as much and, and uh, is almost not up for, for interpretation, is that there was a selfishness to how he lived his life, right? He acknowledged that. Sure. And you see um, all the damage in his wake. You see his son David and uh, his, his first wife um, all talking about that, and he's sort of, um, not unapologetic, but he certainly acknowledges, like, yeah, I, I lived my life for me, at, at least for until probably the recent past. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a section there's a section in the film where some of his stories of partying and betting women are told, and they're funny. You know, they're fun, and I we we screen the film, uh, and, and they got big laughs. You know, those sections, and. But then it takes a turn where you realize there is an effect that you don't see, and that's his children and his wife and, and his family that he neglected. You know, I think Rick's life um, and story, someone was asking me is what the theme of the movie is. And, I mean, I think he says in the open he always wanted to be the man. He could never live with just being a man. And I think that's what it really comes down to. You know, being the man. And, and what is the man in today's culture? It's having the most stuff. It's, you know, for him, being able to stay out all night, being able to drink anyone under the table, being able to have the most women, the most suits, the most robes, the nicest clothes. You know, he said he could never live with being a man. What's a man? A man takes, drives his kids to school in the morning, maybe makes their lunches for him, goes to baseball games. And nobody is cheering for you when you do that. No one's seeing it. No one's giving you that adulation. Say, man, you're doing a great job. You're the best dad ever. It's kind of a it's a self-fulfilling job. You know, you get your own fulfillment from it. He couldn't have that. He needed that constant adulation, that constant praise. Something was missing in him. And I think that is really the battle uh, for Rick Flair. And it's a battle a lot of people go through mm-hmm. in any mm-hmm. profession. You see that with a lot of entertainers and athletes, you know. And I think in the film, I don't know what your thoughts were, but I thought Shawn Michaels was very poignant, you know, basically saying, like, what he's living is not real. It's not a real life. You know, the real life is who is Richard Fleer. And, yeah. um, 
that's something that he just did not want to do. And wrestling gave him that escape. Only in wrestling could he have done this. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, in this yeah. way where it was totally acceptable. So, in that way, wrestling was like the perfect job for him. Yeah, yeah. And there's a point in the movie where you ask him what makes a great wrestler, and he talks about technique and skill and all that. But clearly what made him uh, not just great, but the greatest was about more than that. And it was about the, the, the persona, the, the lifestyle, the character. If, if Michael Jordan, uh, Michael Jordan could have been a, a playboy and uh, a boozer and all of that, or he could have been um, a family man uh, and, you know, a church-going Christian, uh, it wouldn't have made a difference as long as he played the same game, right? I mean, uh, Horns Horn, if he put those points up, he'd still be considered the greatest. With Rick Flair, you take away the persona, the stuff outside the ring, and I don't know if he's still the greatest. I mean, did, did you get that sense too? Oh, definitely. I mean, he says he lived his gimmick, and that's what made, you know, in wrestling, your character is what kind of makes you. And for him, he really was Ric Flair 24-7. You know, Hulk Hogan was, and Hulk Hogan 24-7. Some of these other guys, you know, weren't weren't that way. But he, you know, I'm sure on TV he was amped up a little bit, but he really was the nature boy. And I think that's what makes the film interesting. You ask, why Rick? Why him? Because he's different from those other guys, you know, on the Mount Rushmore wrestling. You know, even Stone Cold Steve Austin, People said, well, you know, he was a lot like his character. True, but I doubt he was walking through the airport, kicking people in the stomach and giving him the finger and dumping beer on them. You know, Flair really was riding around in limousines and, and private jets and having women around him 24-7. So what he talked about on TV, he was really doing. And I think that makes for a fascinating film subject. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, that you can't separate um, – the two, the and and you're right. I mean, with all these great acts, you know, you mentioned Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels is probably right up there with Ric Flair in the conversation as uh, the greatest of all time. But uh, I've I've interviewed him in, in the last couple of years, and um, he's over it, right? I mean, he's done with wrestling, and and he'd rather be talking about his uh, church or film he's making or his family life. And you ask him about pro wrestling, and it's a part of his life that he's proud of but it doesn't uh, define him. You know, there, there's a line in the movie um, um, late in the film where I think he asked him how he wants to be remembered, and, and he acknowledges, Rick Flair, that is, uh, that he'll never be remembered as, as a particularly good father or husband. Um, so he wants to be remembered as the greatest wrestler of all time. And I, I think a Shawn Michaels or a Steve Austin um, wouldn't want that, right? I mean, it's not that it's shallow, but, but uh, and again, I, I don't know that, Ric Flair would be Ric Flair if he didn't think that way, right? For sure. I mean, I think a lot of times our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. And I think you see that with Rick. What what made him great, arguably the greatest, is also his biggest detriment. So that's, that's kind of the yin and yang. And you see that a lot with anyone that achieves very high levels of success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you sense that he blamed himself for his uh, son's death in as much as clearly, uh, you know, there were some character traits that he passed on, not, not his best character traits onto his son? I don't know if he blames himself, but I think it's evident that his son 
wanted to be like Rick. And there's only one Rick Flair. It's like there's only one Michael Jordan. You know, Michael Jordan has sons that play basketball, too, you know? But they're not Michael Jordan. And very few people could live like Rick. I mean, he had a genetic gift. I mean, he's talking about drinking 15 mm-hmm. drinks every single night for how many years? I mean, it was, he says 20 years in the film. is probably 30 to 40 years. He was living like that, living so hard without any sleep, hardly any sleep, working out every day, traveling. And for the most part, injury-free is most of his career. I mean, it's just caught up to him when he's 70 years old. And keep in mind, the guy survived the plane crash. He was hit by lightning, and he should be dead right now. They gave him, I believe, less than a 20% chance to live. He has a genetic disposition that other people don't have. And when his son maybe tried to mimic his behavior, his son had a major drug problem that Rick never had. But, you know, there's, there's a tragic outcome a tragic outcome. You know, we kind of mirror behavior uh, as, as parents, you know, it's like, it's like that classic drug commercial from the eighties, you know, where'd you learn to, to do drugs? I learned from watching you. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's like, I think kids mimic what they see. You know, Ashley had a lot of problems for, for a very long time too. She had two marriages that she discusses in her book and she, she had dabbled in drugs as well. And I think Reed's death is really a wake up call and she kind of immersed herself in wrestling as an escape and, yeah. and working out and exercise and kind of channeled all that energy into a positive direction instead of a negative one. So I think um, getting back to your original question, uh, I, I, I'm sure Rick feels he, he had something to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you sense that um, he has really made a concerted effort to uh, get it right with Ashley. I mean, obviously, she's had kind of a different Ric Flair as a father than than all her siblings. Um, he wasn't on the road as as much when she was growing up because um, her being the youngest and, and he was already the tail end of his career. And uh, obviously, the, the last several years have been, you know, we talk about him being self- selfish. Um, there's been more of a selflessness about him in the last several years in trying to get it right with Ashley, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it helps that she's in wrestling. I mean, you know, wrestling, <laughs> for better or for worse, is probably his first love. So the fact that she's in it and is so good at it, too, uh, that, I think, probably has made her bond a lot stronger. And she loved her dad. I mean, she's told me as much many times. And they have a close bond. But a big part of that bond is wrestling. And mm-hmm. I think it, it's really brought them much closer together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? One of the things you talk about contradictions that that struck me in something you were saying just before was that for all this this selfishness and kind of uh, ego that came behind Rick Flair, you, you touch on uh, in the film about how uh, he was always too happy to make his uh, opponents uh, look good and sell for them. Uh, you know, Hulk Hogan talks about how Flair never you know made an issue of having to lose to him. And there's even some, uh, you know, quick scenes that you show kind of toward the tail end of his career in WCW where he's flipping around and selling for, for guys who really were several levels below him, you know, the Disco Inferno types. Um, and, and even, you know, when he asked you about uh, any regrets about not working with Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, no, he could, you know, it seems like he could care less. So it's interesting that on one hand, a guy with such a big ego, and on the other hand, 
uh, so much of this stuff sort of rolls rolls off of his back. I, I found that fascinating too, that he was so selfless in the ring and tried to make people look good and help people in their careers immensely. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about Sting, but not just Sting. I mean, I remember Kerry Von Erich. You know, I think he he helped him a lot yeah. in his career and 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 some other other names kind of throughout helped give them some credibility for sure. Ricky Moore, you know, the Rock and Roll Express and different people like that. So um, I don't know. It's just kind of who he was and kind of part of it, it is. It's an interesting dichotomy. And I don't really know how to explain it uh, besides that maybe he saw that as his role. I think there's a part of it too that he really wanted people to want to come back again to see him get beat as the bad guy mm-hmm. uh, to lose to lose in that way. But I think he just also always wanted to have a really good match. You know, that's what's really interesting about Rick, too. He gets lost sometimes when he talks about all the partying he did and being the nature boy, is his work ethic. And, you know, when we were doing some press, I, I was talking to him about that. You know, that, that he had an incredible work ethic. And you, you actually do see that with a lot of alcoholics. Like being baby doctors and he's a functioning alcoholic. Well, he never missed a workout. He never showed up inebriated. I mean, he really took his craft seriously. And I think yeah. that shines through. You know, the other thing that shines through, too, is hopefully just how talented he was. That he had this natural gift, not just in the ring, but for talking. I mean, these promos he would deliver were so entertaining. I mean, I probably went through a thousand promos. From the from the 80s and 90s, and he's just he just has that natural it factor that you want to watch him when he's on TV. Even towards the end of his career, he'll put down his time in the late 90s in WCW and say it wasn't good. And he was funny. I mean, he was entertaining. He's still having good wrestling matches, but also whatever skit they put him in, he made work. They put him in a mental institution, right? It was like one of the stupidest things ever. I'm sitting there laughing at it. He's so funny. He's entertaining no matter what they have him do. Every storyline, even the one with Reed, where like he, it, it, you know, they brought Reed in, and he's feeding right. Eric Bischoff. I thought that was a pretty strong storyline. Whatever they gave him, he made work. He's just a natural entertainer and kind of has that gift that you – you just can't put your finger on like what exactly maybe he has that everyone else doesn't. It's just sort of this innate ability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you say that reminds me of, of an assignment I had for Pro Wrestling Illustrated several years ago, which was I think um, I had to recap all of his different world title reigns. There were sixteen, so it was kind of like a quick synopsis of of each of them, um, and. Uh, some stuff I haven't thought about or seen in, in years or, or ever. And here is something that was work for me, but it ended up just being really enjoyable because I'm just watching Ric Flair matches uh, and promos. So I imagine that was the case with you too. You really had to kind of delve in and, and, and it's clear from the film and all the clips you have, uh, how much was that just fun, a, a blast to watch all these promos, old matches? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of times, I wouldn't get editing done because I'm just sitting there watching. So it's, he he was better than I remembered, which is really saying something, especially his promos. I mean, he came out every week 
And he said some of the same shtick, obviously, but he always had something a little different he would throw in there. And what's amazing with him is with his promos, he could be very funny and, and have great lines and, and be comical, but at the same time, he could be incredibly tense. I mean, you know, Marty Smith says, you know, in the film, he didn't feel Hulk Hogan the way he felt Ric Flair. I really believe Rick was, you know, he really believed what he was saying. I mean, you know, Rick would come out there, and I mean, like, the veins are popping out of his neck. I mean, he's making himself bleed. He's making himself bleed during promos. Yeah. I mean, the guy is very intense, you know. And what he really did, too, and I'll see criticism about this, that they don't do this enough now, is he really put a value on being the champion. I mean, to him, being the champion was the be-all, end-all, having that title. And... Yeah. It made it so valuable that people would want that. So you just would, you know, the belt really meant something. The championship really meant something back then. So if you were competing for it or you beat him, I mean, it elevated you onto a whole different level. So again, it just goes into the whole believability that you know you're you're watching this guy and you're like, God, man, he's really crazy or he really hates this guy. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah. As far as the process, you know, ESPN, they, they deal in, in sports, and uh, there's always this, this question, and, and actually the, the documentary uh, touches on it a little bit with the, the Sally Jesse Raphael clip of how legit this is. Was it um, uh, a lot of effort on your part to sell ESPN on doing uh, a 30 for 30 on a pro wrestler? I know they delved into it. I remember the Scott Hall thing, and, and um, ESPN does more coverage of, of WWE now. Uh, but were there any issues, landmines that you kind of had to navigate? Well, keep in mind, it's been about 130 for 30s at this point. Yeah. So they, I mean, they've gone through everything but badminton uh, to do now. So, I mean, I think you're always going to find people that kind of thumb their nose at wrestling. And, you know, this is stupid. Why would we do this? And, you know, for the longest time, when Bill Simmons worked at ESPN, they only wanted to do Andre the Giant as a <laughs> film. And and they really felt like he was the one. And, and, and as a wrestling fan, I got to tell you, I find Andre the Giant kind of boring. I mean, yeah. he's big. You get it. You know, he's a big attraction. But he didn't seem like he had all the layers and dimensions that Ric Flair has. Or even Hulk Hogan or, or Roddy Piper or someone like that. And what happened was, as a, as a wrestling fan, I wanted to interview a wrestler for a film I did called I Hate Christian Late about what it takes to be a bad guy. And Rick appeared in the film for one interview bite talking about what makes a good villain. And that one interview bite like was trending on Twitter. And ESPN noticed that. And a guy at works at ESPN by the name of John Dahl said, you know, what do you think about doing something on Rick Flair? Do you think he'd be interested? And I was like, oh, he'd be incredible. And I've been trying to get a wrestling scene filmed off the ground for years. So that uh, I reached out to Rick's management at the time, and, and they were down trying to get one made. So uh, it kind of just came together pretty easily after that. Was, was this your kind of one bite of the apple, or in the process of doing this, did you come out wanting to do more films about more wrestlers, whether it's Hulk Hogan, or I know you talked to Ricky Steamboat and, and, and a bunch of others. I mean, were you intrigued with some of these other stories that you came across? Sure. I mean, I love wrestling. So I think Hawk Hogan, I mean, there's never been a definitive film on Hawk Hogan. And, you know, you go up to anyone on the street and, and say, do you know who Hawk Hogan is? And they'll say, yeah. 
I think he's probably, in my opinion, the biggest name ever in wrestling. So as far as his name value, and I, I think he's a really interesting guy. You know, The Undertaker would be cool. I mean, if there's not that many people in wrestlers that can kind of, you know, Rick, Rick's very mainstream, especially now, like with the athletes and everything. He's very relevant. So being able to do a really big name that could kind of cross over um, is not tons. Um, that might appeal to non-wrestling fans as well. But I, I would definitely like to do more. I think they're out there for sure. Some incredible stories. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully I'll get that chance. Uh, you know, I'll, tell you, I'll, t- I'll tell you this, too, just as an aside. You mentioned some of the other things being been done on wrestling. You know, everything that I had seen on wrestling up to, to this point, for the most part, fell in the two categories, was either incredibly tragic, like mm-hmm. the Scott Hall thing or uh, like a Beyond the Mat type thing, and yeah. very well done, but just sad, you know, kind of like looking at this industry as kind of one that just takes and takes from the performers and it's not a very good thing to do. and Or I'll see things on wrestling that are just so, like, skim the surface. It's like the person kind of doing the interviewing doesn't seem to know anything about wrestling. And it's like you're learning nothing new if you're a fan. And uh, sometimes in those categories. And I think while there are some, for sure, there's some tragic aspects to Rick's story, I did want the film to be a little bit of a celebration of wrestling and to put it on a pedestal. Uh, as a sport, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'll leave it up to the viewer to say whether, you know, a sport needs to have the competition aspect or not. But uh, to me, with the athleticism and, and the performance that's required, it is a sport. So I think, I don't know what you do, what you think, but I think it's not just a, a film about Rick, but it's a film about wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and nobody's, encapsulates in some ways the, the best and worst of it uh, as much as, as Ric Flair. Um, what do you could tell us quickly about Ashley, how she's doing? And, you know, there, I've always found it sort of amazing. And I remember uh, David Flair's uh, wrestling run, you know, he was okay, but, but certainly those were big shoes still. And I don't think it was a natural read showed um, some real potential and obviously his story tragically. Uh, but, but I've always thought it's so fascinating that, uh, him having two that both went into pro wrestling, it's his daughter that has been the most natural, really taken to it, um, and shows those glimpses. I mean, a lot of what we've we've been talking about with Rick in terms of the full package, not just in the ring, but on the microphone, the performer, the showmanship, um, all of it, that's all Charlotte, right? That's all, all Ashley. So do, do, do you see that as well? Does, and does Rick see that as well? Does he really see himself and his daughter? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think, like, she would make it without him, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think she even needs the last name Flair anymore because she's so athletic. I mean, she's probably one of the best athletes on the entire roster. And, you know, like, when I watching David and Reed, they just looked like regular guys. Like, to me, they didn't really stand out with much star power where you're like, I want to see that person. So, Ashley's different. I mean, she... She's incredibly physical. She's beautiful. She's a good talker. So it's it's interesting. Um, I think she really is now more than ever kind of blazing her own trail. And they don't mention Rick as much in, in relation to her. I think yeah. she's incredibly proud that he's her father. But I think she has something all her own. 
And yeah. it's interesting, again, but she never planned to be a wrestler. It was never her dream. You know, David kind of fell into it very young. I think he was like 18 or 19. And then Reed wanted to kind of win over his father's approval. But actually, just kind of in her mid-20s, did it on a lark. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, you know, doing fantastic. Uh, I don't want to take you much longer, but but you talked to David Flair. He's in the, the, the film a little bit. Uh the, the and I, we can't judge by the little bit he's in the film, but but you get the sense of somebody who is, um, you know, certainly hurt, wounded by some of the things his father did, uh, resentful, uh, that kind of stuff. What what you know you haven't spent a little more time with him. What was your impression of him? Is 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 he sort of um, what's his relationship with his father and how is he doing? I mean, is is he also kind of a tragic figure? I don't think he's a tragic figure. I mean, he seems to have a very nice family and nice children. I think he's doing it very differently with his kids. And yeah. I believe he was homeschooling his kids. I mean, I'm not, I don't talk to him on a regular basis or anything. I don't think I've spoken to him in over a year. But uh, his mom came to the premiere in Atlanta, Leslie. And, mm-hmm. and Megan was there, too. So, you know, as you become an adult, and I don't, do you have children of your own? Yeah, just. Yeah, so I mean, I think you find when you have your own kids, it brings you back to your your own childhood, the good and the bad of it. Uh, maybe you have more positive memories, or maybe you're like, God, like, how can my parents do that? I think that's what happened maybe when he had his own kids. Like things even became, shine more of a light on maybe how selfish his dad was. And I think they're just two very different people with very different values. You know, we that whole the man versus a man. David's much more comfortable just being a man. You know, mm-hmm. just doing the very kind of mundane activities uh, associated with being a dad and a husband. Yeah. And I think Rick has a tough time relating to that. So I don't know that they have very much in common, which yeah. is a little sad. You know, like Ashley, you know, they have uh, they have in common the wrestling. And, and Megan, even though she doesn't wrestle, uh, I think he can relate to having a daughter a little more than a son. Mm-hmm. So I think he and David kind of have been, unfortunately, at odds. And that that is a little sad when you say it's a tragic that they don't have a, much of a relationship. But I would not call David a tragic. No, no, no. I mean, in some ways, it's just the opposite, you know. And, and that was also one of my takeaways from the film. You know, Rick talks about his own parenting, um, his, his parents, who seemed like they meant well, but weren't really supportive of him. Um, you know, you talk about how – he talks about how in his whole career, I think they came to see three matches. He he buys him a $2 million house, and uh, mm-hmm. they they sort of put him down for it. You know, what are you doing? Uh, and, you know, I guess, I don't want to call it bad parenting, but the mistakes of parenting can manifest in, in two ways when you become a parent. You either repeat them uh, or you learn from them and you strive to improve, right, and, and be the parent that your folks weren't. Um, yeah. See, that's what, what we're seeing. I mean, it looks like Rick in some ways repeated some of those same mistakes uh, in, in not being there for his kids. Like, his parents weren't there for him. And maybe David, the opposite, is learning from them and, and doing exactly. that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that quote was just, like, astounding to me. And, like, Rick downplays it uh, about, like, his, his parents only come wrestle three times. I mean, this is like the LeBron of wrestling. I mean, and he wrestled all the time. 
It wasn't like he was wrestling every once in a while or every weekend. I mean, every night of the week. And, and he yeah. traveled all over the country. He wrestle more so, than person. Yeah, yeah. And, he's, and he's their only child. Like, they don't have other kids. So I would think they'd just be following him around everywhere, going to see him wrestle, doing all these things. So he disagrees, you know. He's like, well, you know, I wasn't in Minneapolis much. And I mean, my feeling is who cares? <laughs> I mean, if my, if my son was the – you know, wrestling champion, I'd be trying to see him as much as sure. possible. Yeah. To support him and let him know I'm proud of him and, and all of that. But if you ask Rick, he would say he couldn't have had two better parents. He doesn't seem to hold any resentment. At the same time, though, I don't know if Rick is very uh, introspective as a person. I don't think he really analyzes much of what he does and why he does it. Whereas, like, Shawn Michaels, he, he doesn't – he said this in an interview, and it didn't make the film, but he said if you want to – get healthy, you have to really go through the hard work and pain of why you do what you do, which it seems like he did, talking about himself. And he was saying that it's incredibly painful to do that, and, and it opens up a lot of wounds, but if you can get out the other side, you can have a very happy, healthy life. And yeah. I don't know if Rick has ever done that. I asked him in the film, you know, why couldn't you just go back to the hotel room and watch TV? It's a pretty simple question, you know. I mean, why couldn't you just be by yourself? Just and he was like, I don't know. Good question. I don't yeah. think he does know. So yeah. I think that yeah, he's he doesn't necessarily have that where he wants to dig deep inside himself of why he does what he does. And I imagine the 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 partying and the alcohol has a lot uh, to do with that. That he using that as a way to sort of uh, uh, drown out all of that, you know, the, the thoughts and just kind of you know, he talked about a guy who drank his whole life. He talked about drinking so much heavier after his son died. Um, and that's, you know, thinking of that's what it was about. It's about just not thinking about it. So, um, and, and you, you fall so much deeper and, uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I got the same sense too. It's like, you know, pretty early in the film where he's talking about his, his parents and clearly he's painting a picture of, I don't want to say bad parents, but parents that uh, were not supportive and you'd think would have been more supportive. And, um, he kind of puts the blame on himself, right? And he talks about how right. I, exactly. I was pointing child to them. The whole thing about him getting a, they, arrested for a fake ID or whatever, which I didn't think that they sent him away. That big a deal. They, sent him, they sent him away. Like that's yeah. that's yeah. pretty telling to me. Like, that at that age, and um, yeah, it's almost like uh, he puts it on himself. You know? Yeah. I mean, I I do think that the whole film really. Um, helps put together these puzzle pieces of, of this really complicated guy. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, I won't keep any longer. Uh, as you can tell, I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and you, you touched on it. There, there's so little good art made of pro wrestling for all the obvious reasons of their reputation of pro wrestling, uh, that it's fantastic just to have this, uh, you know, as, as a record, just that this will always sit there and somebody will, will always be able to pop it in and, and watch it. It's just a, a really great well, thank you. telling of a story. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for the support. I mean, I can tell you uh, we had the premiere uh, last week in Atlanta, and uh, I was talking to The Undertaker afterwards, um, and it was really cool that he showed up. And I asked him what he thought, and he said, you know, and which was cool because a lot of times people just in those situations will just give you a compliment. And he goes, you know, I was a little disappointed that there was no, you didn't have the Terry Funk feud in it. And oh, a little right. disappointed 
that you didn't have Harley race. But I started thinking about it. Cause it had been about two hours after the film. There was like a party. But I was thinking about it, though. That's not what this film's about. It's not about examining every feud Rick had and why they were good. It's about examining, encapsulating who Rick was and what wrestling is. He's like, I think he did a really good job of that. And I was like, wow, that's actually a really strong compliment because this isn't, this is not a documented history of everything that ever happened in Rick's wrestling career and every feud he had and everything. No, it's trying to show you kind of who he was, what made him great, and what makes wrestling work. That's what I tried to do. So it's not something that you're going to necessarily see on WWE Network. Um, and I appreciate you saying that the, the film is, is art. That means a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of, you know, my takeaways that I've just been expressing to you, I didn't even think about until talking to you. So it is the kind of thing that uh, I think maybe unfolds uh, uh, in your mind and you kind of start to sort of appreciate more after uh, you watch it. And, you, and you're watching it and you're enjoying the, the clips and all that. But suddenly now that I'm starting to kind of think like, oh, yeah, that was real contradiction. And that's real telling about the man who, who he was. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're looking for a chronological history of Rick Flair's wrestling career, this is not necessarily it. But if you if you want a, a real examination, something a lot deeper about um, the man, and as the Undertaker said, really the business that he's in, uh, I think this is just fantastic. So, um, thank you again so much, Roy. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, for sure, man. Take care. Okay. Man.